Today we are continuing a series that we've been in for a few weeks now called uh, Roadblocks, Moving Forward. We've said that as followers of Jesus, we are moving in a direction. Following implies movement. And, but it, because of that, doesn't it then stand a reason that there is a path that we can follow, there's a road that we can walk on, and if that's the case, then at some point along the way, at some different points along the way, we are going to encounter some roadblocks. Some roadblocks that slow us down, maybe slow down our progress, might even create a little distance between us and Jesus as we follow him. Sometimes these roadblocks are of our own making, sometimes they are the fallout of someone else's choices, but the result is the same. So we're talking about some of the roadblocks that we might encounter even as we're following Jesus, as we're trying to be faithful in our following. These roadblocks can bring our pursuit of spiritual and emotional health and wholeness and spiritual maturity to a standstill. So whether you're with us here in person or joining us at church online or watching on demand or listening on the podcast, thank you for being here with us and for tracking along with us in this series. Our hope is that by digging into some of the topics that we are looking at in this series, that we can begin to kind of acknowledge and address some of these roadblocks in our lives and ultimately to move forward, to begin to move forward, maybe regain some spiritual momentum to keep moving forward as we follow Jesus. For the most part, as we've tackled these topics, we're using the format of here's the roadblock. Let's talk about what that looks like, what kind of impact that has on our journey with Jesus, and then what it would look like to move around or through or over this roadblock and move forward as we walk with Jesus. And as a guardrail for the series, uh, we've been leaning into the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, where he writes, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So if you wonder sometimes, what does this topic have to do with following Jesus? It's because it's part of our lives. And if we're gonna, we want to follow his leading in every part of our lives. Today, we're going to talk about the roadblock of insecurity. I've spent countless hours over the years talking with people about their insecurity, but I don't think I've ever devoted an entire message to the topic. So so let's see where this takes us. Let's do this. Imagine we were going to do a show of hands. We're not, but imagine we're going to do a show of hands and I said, how many of you would say you're basically insecure? You're an insecure person. You struggle with insecurity. So it's pretty obvious why we're not doing a show of hands, right? Because if you're insecure, you're not putting your hand up. So what's the point? So, oh, this just doesn't... If somehow we could... I think every hand would have to go up at some... Some would shoot up. Some would be like, hmm, maybe, sometimes. So there's a spectrum there, right? Because personal insecurity is so common... And this is why we're talking about it today. It's why we're talking about all these topics because these kinds of things, especially insecurity, is a widespread trait of the human experience. The problem with insecurity is there's always somebody who is smarter, thinner, better, faster, who's just better at everything than you are, and that's the challenge. And it leaves us feeling not very good about ourselves and about the contribution that we're making to the planet. So you don't feel very good about yourself, so you're like, well, uh, what, what can I do to make it better? Uh, and here's the thing, you can only fake your way through some things for so long, so we look for ways then when we realize, okay, I've maxed out my ability to fake my way through it, now I have to look for ways to avoid this scenario altogether. It's exhausting. Let me give you a a definition for insecurity that we're going to use, at least in this context. Insecurity is an uncertainty about oneself. 
self-doubt, a lack of confidence, an overall sense of anxiety about your worth, abilities, skills, and value as a person. I was let that kind of like, process that for a second and see if you can identify with any of that. If insecurity is a roadblock in our faith journey, like one that might hold us back as, a, as we follow Jesus, then, what, then my question is, what then is this roadblock holding us back from? Like what's on the other side of insecurity? It might seem like logical that, well, then there's confidence and there's self-assurance uh, like on the other side of the roadblock of insecurity. And I think that's part of it. But the greater discovery, if we really push through insecurity, is a clearer sense of identity, like who we are, who God created us to be, what flourishing as a deeply loved child of God looks like. That's why it's worth working our way through this roadblock. Think of the season of human history that we are living in. I think if you want something to... Oh, which, by the way, I don't know if you had a choice to live any, at any point in time in human history. Um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to live today. I, I choose today. And uh, uh, these, I think these are the good old days. So anyway, that's a side note. If you want, when you think about our human experience today, if you want something to fuel your insecurity, look around. I remember back in the 80s when I was, I was just a child. But I was, I was a teenager and I was in college, especially in my college days, I remember hearing people like culture shapers and people of influence talking about the coming information age. That's going to be the next thing, the information age, information age. Nobody even really knew what they were talking about. That's today. Like we're living in the information age, which is great. And I love it because, uh, have you noticed, this is one of the things I love about it, there is no need for any unanswered questions in any conversation anymore. Just ask Siri. Ask Alexa. Hey, Alexa. I just wanted to mess with your phone. But, uh, hey, Siri. Sorry, turn that off. Um, Google it, right? Um, I love that. Especially love it when I can fact check my argument and prove myself right. And now just keep in mind, sometimes the internet is wrong. And they just need to, they, they don't, they don't, they, they, Google fact checks itself against me. That's how it works. But think about it, though. Think about it. Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, HGTV, Travel Channel, Magnolia Network, whatever. It all immediately complicates things. Do you remember, some of you do, when you had to get on your computer, you had to boot it up. So you turn your computer on and then you'd walk away and go write a term paper because that's how long it took for it to wake up. And then once you got your computer booted up, you would connect to the internet Remember that? I thought about playing a sound clip from that, but I don't like hearing that. So, so and people, if you're certain age and below, you have no idea what we're talking about. You finally got it connected to get on MySpace, and, uh, <laughs> right? Because it wasn't Facebook. Or, or remember when you had to sit down in front of your TV and turn on your cable box or your satellite receiver to see how the rest of the world was, 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 was doing, what it was, you, to find out what are they loving these days? What's, what's attractive right now? It was a whole thing, and you had to be really intentional about it. Like, when I was growing up, maybe you had this experience too. Uh, I only knew the kids in my class or in my school, the kids in my church, the kids who we played with, and for the most part, those were all the same kids for me. Now, on your phone today, which I have right here, I keep it right here with me all the time, uh, yes, I bring it to the stage because uh, we use our phones to control the temperature. If I notice you're nodding off, we turn the heat down, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we do attendance, we check people in with our phones, and sometimes we text one another, even from the stage to the, different parts of the building, whatever. So that's why I have my phone with me, also to check Facebook. But it turns out we, it turns out we have uh, messages being pushed at us all the time on these devices that are never more than an arm, arm's length away from us, right? And these messages are screaming about how awesome everybody else is. They're coming at us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that someone's business is growing faster. Someone's better looking. Someone else lost a bunch of weight. Someone else's kids are overachievers. Someone else just redecorated or just upgraded their thing they bought last year. And we know that we're doing the same thing when we present ourselves to the world on social media. Like, we physically contort ourselves to get the best possible angle on that selfie, right? You know what I'm talking about. How can I have fewer chins in this picture, right? So, or the, the, or the best possible picture of what our house looks like, right? We just take all the clutter from the kitchen counter, throw it into the trash can, and then snap the picture. Like we, we will do whatever, the best filter, whatever, in order to put forward the best version of ourselves. So our vacation looks better than anybody else's. So our achievements look greater than somebody else's achievements. So we look better than we actually are in real life. And it's pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Here's a newsflash. Most of us don't feel great about ourselves. You thought you were the only one. I hope this is comforting. Look around. Look, just look around. Look around the room right now. Those people you're looking at don't feel great about themselves. You're like, well, I understand why. No, don't. don't we won't go there. That's a different, that's a different sermon. But that's rude. Um, we curate our image. And now with things like social media, it's gone to another level. Like it used to be we curated at church because we would... How many of you grew up going to church and wearing your Sunday best? Remember that? Yeah. If that wasn't curating an image, oh no, this is how I worship God. Come on. Managing our image doesn't actually make us feel better about ourselves. We usually end up feeling worse about ourselves because at the end of the day, we're not fooling anybody and we know it. But we live at a time and in this Western culture where there's so much competition, mostly it leaves us feeling terrible about ourselves and as a result, we overcompensate and we become a generation of affirmers and strivers. Sociologists and psychologists have been studying this kind of thing for a long time, and, but well, I should say a long time, for two or three decades. There's actually a phenomenon that's called uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect. And uh, about 25 years ago, uh, a couple of psychologists conducted a study hoping to discover why is it, this is interesting to me, why is it that some people who are not very good at certain things think they're really good at those things? You're like, never mind. Uh, but do you, do you know anybody like that? I wonder if your friends know anybody like that. Have you ever worked with people like that? <laughs> right? Like, you're not that good at that, but for some reason you think you're good at it. It's a Dunning-Kruger effect. And put it in a nutshell, you're unskilled and unaware of it. It's like, you think you're an amazing driver, but people are afraid to get in the car with you. They're like, you only have one seatbelt? I want two. You know? Like, can I activate the airbag now? You know? You think you're a good singer, but you break into song and people leave the room. You think you're a people person, but you've never actually asked anyone what they think because 
Here's the deal. You're not. You think you are knocking it out of the park as a manager and everybody wants to quit under your leadership or lack thereof. You think you're creative and, and, and an innovative entrepreneur and you got 15 failed businesses behind you. You know, you think you're doing great at home and your spouse begs to differ and you think you're doing great as a parent, but you know, time will tell. This gets us into this really strange place where a lot of us don't really know how to feel about ourselves. Uh, Tim Elmore is a leadership expert and uh, an author, kind of a specialist also like in his early days in children and youth ministries in the church. Read a lot of his stuff over the years. He talks about over-affirmation. And he's concerned about the way that we have, uh, especially in the last probably generation or so, over-affirmed our children. And he says, affirmation alone does not breed self-esteem. Affirmation alone doesn't breed self-esteem, it breeds narcissism. And there's a growing uh, body of data and research that says we have raised and are raising a generation of narcissists. That some of us, parents, are narcissists. We, we kind of have generational narcissism. And Elmore says as a result of this over-affirmation, we're actually raising a generation of kids that struggle with high arrogance and low self-esteem. And affirmation after affirmation, when that's all that they get, works against the thing that we think it's building in them. And it actually leaves all of us feeling more insecure. So if Elmore's research shows that we've raised a generation with high arrogance, because we think we're better than we are, and very low self-esteem, because actually we know that's not true, there's this place this where perception and reality, where there's a gap that creates tremendous insecurity. So what do you do about that? I would suggest that until you bring God into this process, there are only two options for you. Option number one is to think less of yourself. Like, I'm really, I'm really not that good, and I have to kind of accept that. I'm really not that good looking. I'm not that smart. I'm not that wise. I'm not that healthy in this area. I'm not that strong. Uh, and probably, really, I don't have anything to offer. And just land there. That's not a great option. The alternative to that is to think more of yourself. Well, then I'm going to tell myself, I'm better. I'm going to look myself in the mirror and read an affirmation every day. I'm going to talk myself out of this. I'm going to feel better about myself because I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. But inevitably, thank you, inevitably you find yourself doing a lot of life in that gap between perception and reality. If we go back a couple, a couple generations to a writer some of you may be familiar with, his name is C.S. Lewis. Lewis was a British writer, scholar, theologian who lived in the first half of the 20th century. He wrote books like Mere Christianity, Screw Tape Letters, The Problem of Pain, and um, other classics, but then the classic children's uh, series, The Chronicles of Narnia. You've probably heard Lewis's quote about humility, where he said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I don't know... Um, the answer to this question of insecurity and humility and narcissism and identity. Um, I don't know any other way to solve the tension that we're talking about outside of what God has to say about us. What God has said in the scripture, which we believe to be the word of God, and then in the action God took to speak into this dilemma in the person of Jesus. It's the only thing I know to go to. So if you really want to tackle insecurity, like, these are not great options. Think love yourself or think more of yourself. And I would say if you want to tackle insecurity, I do think C.S. Lewis was right. 
Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. Think of Christ more. Or you could say think of yourself less and, and, and who you are in Christ more. And, and maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, uh, even if you consider yourself a Christian, because you're like, I don't know what that means. Like, do I think of Jesus more, right? Do I, I, do I think of church? Do I read the Bible more? Because, you know, I tried reading that. didn't really help. Can't figure that out. Um, so why do I not feel better about myself? Why do I not feel more secure? Why am I always worried about what other people think? Why am I always worried about the scale and the mirror and the selfie I just posted? You're all familiar with the childhood, the, the saying from our childhood, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's a lie. That's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. Words that others speak into our lives have power, real significant power, power to build us up, power to lead us to thrive and flourish and become what God has created us to be, and power to tear us down, power to drive us to destructive behaviors, power to undermine our sense of identity and our confidence, and to fuel our insecurity. Words spoken to us in our past echo through our subconscious for years. Sometimes they're screaming, but most of the time they're whispering. Whispers from the past. These whispers have a way of taking root and affecting us for years. Whether or not they're accurate doesn't change the message we're receiving because we've accepted the whispers as true. Words that are spoken over us, and now we, you know, you've repeated them to yourself for years, maybe for decades, still feeding your insecurity. The writer of Proverbs in the Old Testament said this in Proverbs 18. He said, the tongue has the power of life and death. Like, think about it. Words can start wars, like literal wars. wars. Words can, can bring peace. Words can lead to marriage. Words can lead to the end of a marriage. Praise, criticism, deception, gossip, affirmation, slander, comfort, encouragement. We do all of these things with our words. So what happens when the negative words spoken to us embed themselves in our minds? I would say, left unaddressed, they echo through our lives for years to come, stunting our growth as people, hindering our ability to be healthy, flourishing, fully functioning humans, and bringing our growth at times as a, stand, as a follower of Jesus to a standstill. Like there's a point where we max out when we're captive to the lies being repeated in our minds. Because these, these whispers have the power to lock us into a perpetual state of insecurity, never able to really embrace the identity that God has created us to live in, never able to approach life with the confidence and the surety that God created us to lean into. And often our response to the whispers from the past is basically we resign ourselves to live as if the whispers are true. The whisper that says, you're worthless. You'll never measure up. You don't have much to offer. Sometimes that can make us work relentlessly. It can make us resistant to rest and Sabbath. It's why maybe you had the reaction you did to Aaron's message a couple weeks ago about hurry and rest. Because we got to be achieving. 
right? We have to be making progress. We have to be accomplishing the thing that proves the whispers wrong. Like whispers are why we get so defensive. It's why we can't say no. It might be why you always say no. It's why you collapse into anxiety when things start to fall apart. It's why anything less than perfection is failure in our lives. I mean, you might, you might respond in the opposite direction. Like that maybe the whispers from your past are why you've never even attempted to pursue your dreams. It's why you struggle to put words to your passion, let alone begin to chase it. Because it's, it's, maybe it's why you don't take risks at all. It's why you play it safe all the time because if it's true that you're already a failure and you're not going to amount to anything anyway, your contribution isn't that significant, then what's the point? Why bother? In Luke 18, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's nearing the end of his ministry here on earth and the events leading up to the crucifixion are just like hours away. And he's about to ride into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. Crowds of people will be waving palm branches and cheering for him, honestly, because they aren't quite sure what he means by kingdom of God. They're a little bit confused, but it's, it is what it is. And before he gets there, he passes through the town of Jericho. And as is usually the case, the word spread that Jesus is coming. It's already spread through town, so there are already crowds of people there to see him. For a lot of people, they just need a glimpse. They just want to see this guy with all this buzz around him. One man in particular is uncomfortable in the crowd. I don't know if that's you or not, but a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. No one likes having him around because he works for the Romans, for the occupiers. He takes advantage of his own people to enrich himself. No one will let him through the crowd to get a good view of what's going on. And then to make matters worse, Scripture makes sure to point out he's shorter than everybody else. He can't see over the crowd. So he finds a tree, he climbs up into it, waits for Jesus to walk by. And I really think that Zacchaeus would have been content with just a glimpse of Jesus. Just to get a glimpse and to see what was going on, what all the hubbub was about. I don't think he intended to have any interaction with Jesus at all. But Jesus comes by the tree where Zacchaeus was watching from and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I have to be a guest in your home today. It's like, First of all, how did he know he's in this tree? I think he was freaking out. It's like Jesus singled out the person in the crowd who was most insecure. And he offers what Zacchaeus has the least of, unconditional acceptance. Jesus wants to spend time with him. Like this is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus wants to spend time with and cultivate a relationship with us. This is what truth does for us if we let it. It's the only way to, to counteract the effects of the whispers, to hear the voice of Jesus because he tells us what the Father thinks of us. Just like the Father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, our Heavenly Father says to us, all that's mine is yours. No reason to prove yourself, just be with me. No reason to try to earn my blessing, just it's yours for the asking. You are already fully and unconditionally accepted. We didn't do this on purpose when we planned this series. In fact, we made some changes to the original schedule, so this wasn't intentional. But I find it interesting how Amanda's topic uh, of shame last week is so closely connected to our insecurity. I'm going to put it this way. Guilt and shame are relatives in the family tree of insecurity. Like, though the distinction isn't always clear, I would explain guilt as a response associated with the clear breaking of 
rules or an established standard. It reflects on what I did. Shame, on the other hand, is the belief that not only did we do something wrong, but there is something wrong with us, that we are flawed, and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So guilt deals with behavior and shame relates to our identity. And further to Amanda's teaching last week, just to not to reteach her message, but to reemphasize this point that she brought out, that sometimes our shame is not rooted in our own behavior, or our own sin, but in the sinful behavior of others. So we have to be able to distinguish that. Dysfunction and trauma in our, in our past warps our identity. And when it's unclear who we are or when the message of, of, or when the message of who we are is clear, but it's rooted in untruth, it contributes to this lifelong self-protective habit and even self-destructive habits. It can go both ways and often does. Here's the thing. Hiding from shame distances us from God and from people. Amanda talked about this last week when she read from the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, that shame is a roadblock to intimacy. If intimacy is to know and be known, shame simply doesn't allow that to happen. And when our human experience doesn't include knowing and being known, we don't flourish. And it's a vicious downward spiral. And the shame that feeds our insecurity prevents us from experiencing intimacy and community, which prevents us from being healthy, thriving people, which leads us all the way back around to our shame and insecurity. These unchecked and unaddressed whispers from our past only bring guilt and more shame and fear and insecurity. Meanwhile, the Spirit of God is saying to us in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and 8, he says, Now my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's righteous principles. So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in union with Jesus. So what do we do? What's the practical help? Let's go to the scripture. Specifically, I want to highlight three or four different examples of people who, whose stories we have in the Bible and look at their response to either a, generalized, a general like overall insecurity or insecurity within a circumstance and in kind of a moment in time. So I want to start with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. So generations after Joseph brings his family to Egypt to save them from a widespread famine, the Israelites find themselves enslaved. They've been slaves for so long that they'd uh, kind of forgotten what freedom was. I mean, it had been generations after generation. They, meanwhile, an Israelite by the name of Moses, who happened to grow up in Pharaoh's household, is out in the fields tending sheep when he notices a bush on fire but not burning up. So he does what any of us would do, and he wants to go check it out and get as close as possible. And in doing that, he ends up having a conversation with God. I think it had been a long time since he had a conversation with God, but that's another story. God's message for Moses was, go to Pharaoh, bring my people out of Egypt. Simple message. And Moses' response was, uh, whoa, who do you think I am that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Like, who am I? And, and, then, and then God, what do I tell the people? Anyway, like, they're not going to follow me because who am I? And what if they don't believe me about this encounter right here? And, and I'm not, have you noticed, I'm not very good with words. I never have been. I get tongue-tied and my words get all messed up. And in Exodus 4, verse 13, he actually says, Lord, please, exclamation mark, send anyone else. 
And notice a couple things about Moses' response to God here. First, he sees only his own inabilities. So I'm going to give Moses a lot of credit because he, he uh, knows himself really well. He's self-aware. So he's focused only on himself, what he can and can't do, his own abilities and inabilities. Second, he doesn't know firsthand what God is like. So his, like, think about this. His faith heritage had been handed down to him for generations. So he's heard the stories. He's been told what God was like. Uh, and, and I mean, he's the guy who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And like Genesis was all oral history that had been passed down, passed down, passed down. So he'd been told what God was like. But he had yet to see God at work himself. So at the crux of insecurity for him is this question of belief. Like, who am I going to believe? What am I going to believe about myself? What am I going to believe about God who created me and about God now who has called me? Here's what God said to Moses. First, he says, I'll be with you. Next, he says, I am who I am. Like, learn for yourself what is true about me, and you'll have confidence in me. Next, he says, go, I'll help you. God helps him with his inability by bringing his brother Aaron alongside of him so that he could focus on his abilities. So there's Moses. Look at the man who followed Moses in leading the Israelites, a man named Joshua. Joshua was Moses' protege for years. He enjoyed the safety net of Moses' leadership because for all those years, he kind of enjoyed not being ultimately responsible because he was like in the second chair and the fate of the nation rested on Moses' decisions, not his. Until one day when Moses was nearing the end of his life and he tells Joshua, he says, it's time, you're going to be my successor and lead the nation. And Joshua freaks out a little bit. Can you imagine the insecurity that comes from comparing yourself to a leader like Moses? Like, how do you live up to that? So in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord speaks directly to Joshua's insecurity because there is no room here for comparing. That was not going to be helpful and and doubting his own uh, calling and ability. Like insecurity couldn't rule in this situation. So God gives gives Joshua some instructions, something to head off the insecurity. In verse 6 of Joshua 1, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Then you'll be successful in everything you do. Verse 8, he says, Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Then he says, This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then there's David. You're probably familiar with the story of the prophet Samuel coming to David's father, Jesse, to anoint the next king of Israel. He'd just be the, just the second king in Israel's story, so they hadn't really established how this was going to work. It's, we now look at it, it's a little bit weird that uh, the king's still living and we're going to anoint someone outside of his family, but they hadn't quite figured that out yet. So one by one, Samuel dismisses Jesse's sons. And after the seventh one, Samuel knew that none of these were the one that God had chosen. And wondering what's up, he asked Jesse, he's like, are all your sons here? And Jesse had to admit the youngest was still out in the field tending sheep, the lowest role on the family farm. So apparently he didn't even get invited to meet the prophet. On top of that, like his brothers did not think well of him. If you read the story of David and Goliath, you'll pick up on that vibe. Of course, Samuel anoints him to be the next king anyway. But here's the thing, that anointing didn't erase David's insecurity instantly. When you think about it, he did have reasons to feel insecure. 
The words and the attitudes of his family echoed through his mind, those whispers from the past. King Saul, his father-in-law and father figure, tried to kill him. Then he forced him to live as a fugitive. His wife mocked him and disrespected the way he worshipped God. And for all of his accomplishments and all of his power and all of his position, David still saw himself as a nobody. And when David found himself in an unhealthy place, his response to insecurity sometimes led to things like taking a census in order to number the able-bodied men so he'd know what he had in his army, which was a direct disobedience to God, if you read the story. Perhaps it led to his adultery with Bathsheba, another kind of conquest for him. There are a few incidents where David responded to his insecurity in an unhealthy way, but there are more positive examples. It seems like David was most secure in those times when the circumstances of his life were the most uncertain. In those times, he relied on the presence and the power of God and the people that God had placed in his life. Because see, David didn't choose to be king. And he still saw himself as a nobody. And even though he stumbled at times, for the most part, he didn't allow his insecurity to paralyze him. He was continually seeking intimacy with God. He was, and I, I believe he's in that pursuit that he finally discovered that he didn't have to be king to be somebody in God's eyes. And jump ahead to the New Testament after the time of Jesus. I'm drawn to some of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul carried emotional regret and grief about the past, both guilt and shame. And he felt inadequate for the purpose for which God had clearly called him. At times, he was anxious about the future. Uh, in his letters, he often wrote about these things, speaking from his own experience, from his own journey, these issues that had been roadblocks for him at one time, and that for the most part, he'd found a way to move past. He was so intentional about pursuing intimacy with God, he saw himself as weak, and God still wanted him. He knew he was wrong at times, and God still wanted him. He was broken and messed up with guilt and shame, with plenty of whispers from the past, and God still wanted him. He was the ugly one, he was the dangerous one, he was the feared one, and God still wanted to be close to him. In Romans 7, Paul says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it, it's sin living in me that does it. Sounds like a bit of an excuse, but... Verse 21, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Oh, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. With my mind, I think that's interesting. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. He's writing this and his willpower is shattered. His strength is spent. His confidence is broken. He's a mess. He's entangled in his own inadequacies and failures. Here's the thing. Our self-condemning thoughts, whispers, bring messages of guilt and shame and ultimately insecurity, not sure who we are, whose we are, or what we're capable of. Then Paul goes on in chapter 8, talking about God's grace for his weakness, the Holy Spirit's empowering us as we position ourselves to experience his presence and the Holy Spirit does what we cannot do, and He accomplishes the work of the Father in us and through us. Here's the thing. Like, we as a church, we believe that every human being has the signature of God on them. Scripture calls it the image of God. There's a ton of meaning in this idea that we are created in God's image. But just one aspect of this is that we are created for community. 
Like just as the triune God exists in eternal relationship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we as humans have this capacity for community and this need for community, listen, with our Creator and with one another. In the garden, we heard some of the story last week, when God has everything just the way He designed it, we were fully loved. We knew as humans what it was to know and be fully known. The very presence of God in the garden was the source of all the love and intimacy and community that we would ever need. And what set us apart? Like our identity as humans was and is based on the image of God stamped on us and that love relationship with God. From the early church fathers of the third century to St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century to modern psychology and sociology, we know there are three common languages, uh, or I should say longings, uh, motivations, passions, drives that emerge in humans. They could be reduced to these three things, to be accepted, to be significant, and to be secure. This is what humans had in the beginning, acceptance, significance, and security. And then all that changed when our relationship with God was broken. Acceptance, significance, security were lost. But not forever. Amen. Jesus Christ has something to offer. He makes it possible for the curse of the fall to be reversed, for what was lost to be regained, for what was broken to be restored. Jesus restores us. In Christ, we are once again fully loved, acceptance accepted, significant, and secure. Now, as loved, and you're probably sitting there like, yeah, that's right. But as loved and as secure and as sure as our identity in Christ is, we don't always feel that way, right? Those whispers from the past have a way of cutting through what we know is true. And we find ourselves living from a place of insecurity, making decisions from a place of insecurity, doing relationships from a place of insecurity, even relating to God from a place of insecurity. That's the residue left behind by sin, the wounds caused by others, the scars from years of maybe living for ourselves. And all of that blocks the reality of the love of our Heavenly Father that He's invited us to live in. But the Holy Spirit exposes our unbelief. I could have said it this way, the Holy Spirit exposes our belief in what is not true. It's our thinking, our belief systems, our worldview, our values. All that affects the choices that we make, the behaviors that we engage in, even the way that we see ourselves. And the Apostle Paul had what I think is supernatural insight into how the mind works. Because you think about what Paul had to say about the human psyche in the first century. He said things like this in Romans 12. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 10, he said, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Listen, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In Philippians 4.8, he says, finally, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, before we do anything, he says, think about these things. Secondly, our Heavenly Father changes who we are. Our loving Heavenly Father gives us a new identity. 
God declares us to be his very sons and daughters. And when we're not living in our standing as his children, as his sons and daughters, then we find ourselves enslaved to any number of things, to fear, to pride, to shame, to guilt, to revenge. Ultimately, we spend all of our time and energy and emotional resources trying to please ourselves and others and to earn favor with God. In the first century, slaves lived in perpetual insecurity and uncertainty and dependence on the opinions of others. And, but sons and daughters, like they, 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 know, they know where they stand. They recognize that they are accepted, significant, and secure, that nothing they can do changes that. Like sons and daughters of God know who they are because our identity is wrapped in what Jesus has done for us. And then third, Jesus shows us who God is. God is great, God is glorious, God is good, God is gracious, God, I didn't mean to alliterate all that, God is merciful, God is kind, God is love. Insecurity expresses itself in all kinds of shapes and sizes and all personality types and all generations. It's because insecurity is rooted in the brokenness of the human experience. And when we are separated from our creator, all we have is ourselves, and that can be frightening. But Jesus is God's answer to our brokenness. You know, people come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons and all kinds of circumstances and all kinds of ways. Some people start following him because they like his teaching. They like how he treated people. They like what he revealed about God. So they start following him. And somewhere along the way, they realize, hey, you know what? I actually believe this guy. Like, I believe what he's teaching. I believe his claims that he is from God and that he and the Father are one, that, that he's actually God in the flesh. Like, not only do I believe him, I believe in him. And for some people, that's a process. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not. For others, coming to Jesus comes in a moment in time. Like one minute, they're not a follower of Jesus, and then the next minute, you know, they cross a line of decision, and uh, I make this decision. It has to be made. And in that moment, they declare their belief and start their journey as a follower of Jesus. So on a pretty regular basis here on Sunday mornings, we want to give you a chance to have a moment where you enter into this relationship with our Heavenly Father and to experience the grace and forgiveness and purpose and joy and peace and bring clarity to your identity, to who you are, whose you are, so you can live with confidence and security. Maybe you've been coming here for a while, find yourself starting to understand some of these things. You've never, maybe you never really understood them before, never gave them much thought before, and you're beginning to realize it's not about what I do, it's about what Jesus did for me. So today, maybe you find yourself ready to embrace the truth of the God who came in the flesh to restore our relationship with him and begin to experience what Jesus called the rich and satisfying life that he offers. That's where you find yourself this morning. We want to give you a chance to make this decision to place all of your faith in the God who pursues us, the God who came to earth as one of us, to place all of your trust in Christ's death on the cross as a payment for your sin. And I want to lead you in a prayer and this prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Prayer is just a way that we express the decision to put our faith in Christ. The band and the singers are going to come to the stage, but if you would just kind of stay right here and focus with me, that'd be great. I want to lead you in this prayer right now. Let's bow our heads if you're comfortable doing that, and you can pray this with me silently right where you are. You can change the words, use your own words, but say something like this. Lord, I believe that I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus came to be my Savior. I believe that when he died, he died for my sin. And I believe that I can have a right standing with you through what he did. 
I'm not trusting in my efforts. I'm not trusting in my church participation. I'm not trusting in any religious ritual. I'm putting all of my faith in who Jesus is and what he's done on my behalf. Thank you, God, for coming to earth in the person of Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. And I accept your gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen. If you prayed that prayer with me just now, or you're at the point of some kind of a spiritual decision, we'd love to take a minute with you to talk with you. First of all, I'd love for you to fill out a Connect card in the seat back near you. You can leave that in the little box by the door as you leave today. Just come in the backside. Let us know kind of what that spiritual decision was today. I'll just send you an email and we'll, we can have a conversation that way. Um, or better yet, take that card right to somebody at the, in the prayer team, right in the prayer space at the back of the room there. They'll be there for the rest of the service. Feel free to go and have that conversation. We'd love to talk with you for a minute. Thank you so much for your attention today and your engagement. I really appreciate it.